turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and uh, we are making our way through second or through First and Second Thessalonians here on Wednesday nights, and uh, next week will be our final study in this series. But uh, we come tonight to a very uh, interesting passage, and so we're going to look at this whole chapter. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in knowing that, that you, Lord, you are coming again. And, uh, Lord, we are so looking forward to that. I pray tonight that you would minister to our hearts, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us that you would do a work in this time that we would spend right now and then in our circle groups, our time of discussion. And so we give you uh, our time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you know that there are 774,747 words in the Bible? I counted them all this afternoon. <laughs> but you know... Of the most comforting word in the entire Bible, I think is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. And, and you only see it in the King James Version. It's the word Maranatha. Let me everybody say Maranatha. You know, we know that here as a name of a church, but you know that is in the Bible. And it simply means, O Lord, come. I think it's the cry of God's people, isn't it? Oh, Lord, come. Lord, we need you to come. Whether it's, Lord, we need you to come and, and, and to this planet and set up your kingdom or come to take us out of here or just come and, and let your presence be among us. It's a great cry, Maranatha. We've seen that the coming of Jesus is one of the great themes of First and Second Thessalonians. We've noted in our recent study of First Thessalonians that Paul mentions the Lord's coming in every single chapter. And in chapters four and five, he spoke in great detail about the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. And we noted the rapture is when Jesus comes not to the earth, but to the clouds, and he's coming for his church, to take his church to be with him in heaven. It's what Jesus said in John chapter 14. I'm going to prepare a place in my father's house for you and I will come again so that I may take you to where I am going to be. So that's the rapture, Jesus coming for his church. And then there's the second coming. Paul also talks about that. And that's when he's coming with his church to set up his kingdom. In a thousand year reign here upon planet earth. And Paul made it very, very clear in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5 that the rapture would precede the tribulation time. 
That time, the tribulation is that time that we read in the Bible, we read in the book of Revelation, we read in several of the uh, minor prophets talk about the tribulation time. It's that time when God will be pouring out his wrath on planet Earth um, and on his wrath on a world that has rejected his son. And Paul made it very, very clear that believers wouldn't be a part of that because we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, that he said this, we're not appointed unto wrath. We're not appointed unto the wrath of God. That's separate. The wrath that we deserved was poured out on Jesus for us at Calvary. So when Paul ended the teachings in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5, we saw, if you want to look at it, in chapter 4 verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians, he ended the chapter in this way with this exhortation, therefore comfort one another with these words. And then again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says the same thing, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing. So this tells us that the teachings about the rapture and the second coming of Christ are meant to encourage us, to comfort us, not to scare us or discourage us. So that's what Paul had taught this young church. This church that he had only been with for three weeks, but God did something beautiful in that city, and it had continued on after he left. But about a year after Paul started the church there in Thessalonica, there were false teachers who came into the church promoting the idea that the day of Christ had come and that the church, that the believers were actually living in the time of the tribulation, that they had missed the rapture and that they were in the great tribulation. And the reason that they were teaching this was because of the persecution that they were encountering at the hands of the Romans. So this message, I mean, think about it. This message was very, very disturbing to them. That's why we'll see in a minute that Paul says to them, I don't want you to be troubled and I don't want you to be shaken. But imagine, imagine being told that you missed the rapture. I mean, that would be troubling, right? Okay, moment of truth, you're in church. Have any of you ever had a moment where you thought you missed the rapture? <laughs> I did. There were several times when, when I came home as a kid and like the, all the doors in the house are open, the windows are open, TV's on. It's like so uncharacteristic for my parents, you know? And I come home and they're not, I can't find them anywhere. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I missed the rapture, you know? <laughs> I'm turning on the radio to see if, you know, Pastor Chuck's on there. Like, okay, if he's here, then we're good, you know? And, and, uh, but I, I seriously thought that when I was a youth pastor, I'm embarrassed to admit to say this, but, um, at our youth, we had this youth home group, and, and there was this, we would pray, like at the end of the prayer time, and there was this kid named Jack, and he always would fall asleep when we were praying. So one night, I got everybody to take off their shoes and go into the other room so that when he woke up, all he saw was our shoes, and he thought he, the rapture had happened, you know? And I know, horrible. Um, but 
That's what these guys are thinking. We missed the rapture. We're in the midst of the tribulation time. So Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians to clear up that confusion because he doesn't want them to be shaken. He doesn't want them to be discouraged. He doesn't want them to, to be in a place where they're just discouraged in their faith. And I want you to just one more thing before we jump into the text. I know this is a lot of intro, but I think it's very, very important to note this, to just catch this. It's very, very important to note that the only reason why the Thessalonians would be shaken or troubled by the thought that they were in the great tribulation, the only reason why that would trouble them was if Paul had taught them that they were going to escape the tribulation because of the rapture. That's the only reason why it would have shaken them up, right? If he would have told them, hey, you're gonna, we're going to go through this and it's going to be hard and you got to prepare for it, they, they would have realized that that would have been a precursor to the Lord's coming. But the very fact that they were troubled was because, I think it's a great, it makes it very, very clear, clear evidence that Paul taught a pre-tribulation rapture. So here in chapter 2, Paul gives three signs that will mark the coming day of the great tribulation to let them know you, you, haven't, missed, you're not, you haven't missed the rapture, we're not in it yet because these are three things that will proceed, three things that are going to happen. And so we begin in verse 1, he says, Now brethren, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Now pause right there for a moment. The day of Christ is also known as the day of the Lord in the Bible. And we've talked about this before, but it's important that you realize that the day of the Lord is not talking about a specific day. The day of the Lord, the day of Christ, is speaking about a time period. It's a time period that begins with the rapture of the church. That's the, the starting point of it, and it ends at the second coming of Christ. That's the culmination of it. That whole time period, including the tribulation time, is known as that period of the day of the Lord. So he says, I don't want you to be shaken concerning the day of the Lord. Pick it up in verse 3. He says, no, no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Isn't that a radical thing about we're going to talk about this in a minute, that Paul was, what he's talking, what he's referencing here is what Jesus called and Daniel both called the abomination of desolation. I'll explain that in a minute. But Paul's talking to this young church about this. The Holy Spirit's inspiring him to bring them through at this young church at the time that they were in and just having foresight of what was going to be coming that he wanted them to realize. He wanted their hearts to be encouraged. And when they saw trouble happening that, hey, it's not this because this is going to be a very, very clear defying of God. 
He says, do you not remember, verse five, that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Pause there and give me your attention. Paul gives us here three signs that mark that coming day. Number one, there will be a falling away. There'll be a a great apostasy. Number two, the man of sin, who is the Antichrist, will be revealed. But number three, the one who restrains, who's restraining the Antichrist from coming into power, he is going to be removed. So this is what we want to break down and talk about. What are these three things? So first of all, he says, there will be a falling away, a great apostasy. Look at verse three again. Let no one deceive you. By any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the ancient Greek wording here for falling away indicates a rebellion and a departure. Now, Bible scholars debate if this refers to an apostasy amongst people who are believers in Jesus Christ, or is it referring to an apostasy, a turning away from God and truth for the world in general, for, for culture in general. And you know what? Paul talked about both. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he said this. Now, the Spirit especially says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, notice that. Paul says, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit says, in the latter times, in the last days, in other words, there will be some who will depart from the faith. Well, you can't depart from something that you were never a part of, all right? So he's talking about people who are believers, people who have been in the faith. You know, I can't say, if I'm not here tonight, I can't say, I departed from Calvary Vista and went home tonight. If I'm down at the, it's not there anymore. There used to be a bowling alley. But um, if I'm down at Chili's, okay, I can't say I departed from Calvary Vista tonight to go home. It's only if I'm here, right? Well, he says some are going to depart from the faith. Some who are a part of the faith are going to turn from the faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says this. It'll be on the screen. For the time will come. When they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fable. So Paul is saying, in the last days, believers would be departing from the faith. Departing from the truth. Now I ask you a question. How many of you know somebody who once walked with Jesus who is radically backslidden right now. How many of you know somebody like that? Yeah, I think a lot of us do. How many of you know somebody that that once walked with Jesus who has completely deconstructed from the faith? Okay, I know several people like that right now. This is what Paul is talking about. And you know, it starts with questioning the truth. Listen to this, a survey by Barna Research revealed that two in three adults, or 64%, believe that truth is always relative to a person and their circumstances. How many of you have heard that one today? 
Like, hey, there's, you know, truth is, it's about my circumstance. It's like, you know, my situation. I know what the Bible says, but my situation is different. That's what it's saying. 64% believe that. Among teenagers, 83% claim that moral truth depends on the situation. Only 6% say that moral truth is absolute. That's amongst teenagers. In 2022, the state of theology from LifeWay Research revealed that 60% of Americans say that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not of objective truth. This is what Paul is saying would be happening in the last days. And we are seeing it happen in a rampant way right now in our culture. So Paul wrote that in the last days, there would be many departing from the faith. The apostasy of leaving the truth, departing from Christian faith to follow their own ideas. But he also wrote of a general apostasy. In culture as a whole, generally in culture, just turning away from God, turning away from truth. And we're living in that time as well. Here's how Paul described it in 2 Timothy 3. He says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times or dangerous troubling times is what that means will come. For men will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money and boasters and proud and blasphemers and disobedient to parents and unthankful and unholy and unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. That's the day and age that we're living. It's the same day and age or the same sentiment that was summed up in one of the most um, despairing times in Israel's history in the book of Judges when it said, and everyone did what was right in his, his own eyes. That's the day and age that we're living in, isn't it? That's our culture today. Just, you know, I'm going to state my own truth and I'm going to go my own way and don't tell me, you know, what I need to believe. And that's the world that we're living in. So in these passages, Paul states that the last days would be marked by a time when people would be departing from faith in Christ, but that there would also be a departure in general and just culture in general in the last days of departing from the truth, departing from just acknowledging uh, there's an absolute truth, there's, an absolute, there's, there's a God that we have to answer to, and we see that. But I want you to notice something in verse three because Paul calls this the falling away. And I want you to note that. The article the speaks of a specific falling away. In other words, a specific time when people in mass would be turning away from God. And you know when I think this is going to happen is after the rapture. When the rapture happens, there's going to be two things that happen. There's going to be, the Bible tells us, a lot of people who are going to turn to faith in Christ. People that we've witnessed to, people that we've talked with, people who, you know, saw the Left Behind movies or whatever and didn't, you know, turn to the Lord and suddenly they're going to be like, oh my gosh, they were right. And and they're going to, they realize, they know what's coming. And so they're going to give their lives to Jesus. And the Bible tells us in Revelation uh, chapter seven that a lot of them are going to be martyred for their faith. It describes in Revelation chapter 7, listen to this, an innumerable amount of people who will be martyred during that time of the tribulation for turning to Jesus. So there will be, there's going to be people who are going to turn to Christ after the rapture. But there's going to be a lot of other people who are going to turn from Christ 
and turn to the Antichrist. And I think this is what Paul is making reference to when he says the falling away. Like, hey, you're seeing, he's basically saying this, you're seeing an apostasy, a falling away right now, but you haven't seen anything yet. What's coming, the falling away is going to be treacherous. So that's the first thing that Paul says. He's saying, look, you're not in the tribulation because when it comes, there's going to be a massive falling away and, and, and you're not experiencing that right now. The second thing he says, though, is that the man of sin is going to be revealed there in verse three. The man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. The man of sin is the Antichrist. We see him come on the scene in Revelation chapter six. He comes riding on a white horse. He, he looks like the Messiah, but he is a false Messiah. He's a self-appointed Messiah. And we see in our text the characteristics of this man If you jump down to verse nine, it says the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Here's three things that we need to note about this one who's going to be called the Antichrist, that he comes according to the working of Satan. In other words, he's going to have the devil's inspiration and backing. He's called the son of perdition. You know, the only person in the Bible who was called the son of perdition, anybody know who that was? Judas, right. And the Bible tells us that before Judas went and to betray Jesus, that Satan entered him. That's a heavy thought, isn't it? Not a demon, but Satan himself. And Satan himself is going to enter this one, this son of perdition, and he's going to enter the one known as the Antichrist. And we also see that he's going to do great power and signs and wonders. Did you know that Satan has supernatural power? He can do supernatural things. But this is why we need to understand that miracles are not a sign that something is from God. Satan can produce miracles as well. In fact, it's interesting, if you think back to the time when Moses went to Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, and he's telling Pharaoh, let my people go. And to show that he had you know, power, remember uh, Moses takes his staff and he throws it down and it becomes a serpent. Well, Satan, or excuse me, Pharaoh's sorcerers, they did the same thing. They threw their, their staffs down and they became serpents. And like every plague, you know, Moses calls and frogs come out. And so do they. Frogs, the only thing they couldn't do, they could duplicate some of the things that Moses was doing, but they couldn't reverse anything. You know, they couldn't be like, okay, let's take away all these frogs. No, we'll just make more of them. Like you think Pharaoh would be like, you guys are fired. You know, I mean, they're making more of a problem. But it's an indication that the devil has some supernatural power in his being. And it's sobering to think about. I mean, this is heavy to think about. That Jesus talks about, I think it's in Matthew 25, he talks about those who come and they say, but we cast out demons in your name. Remember what he says? Depart from me. I didn't even know you guys. I mean, they were doing some supernatural stuff. But Jesus is saying, I I don't know you. I have no relationship with you. So the Antichrist is going to have some power to do some pretty crazy things that's going to catch people's attention. I don't know if it'll be Chris Angel-esque or whatever it's going to be. I mean, I think that, I think that guy's kind of possessed, to be honest with you. But, uh, but it also says he comes with lying wonders in verse 9. In other words, he's a master deceiver. 
The Antichrist is going to be a master deceiver. And look at verse 10. It says, And with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So the Antichrist is going to have great power. He's going to be a man of great influence. He's going to be a charismatic type of leader. He'll probably be a good-looking you know, type of guy, a great orator, but he's going to be a master deceiver and a master manipulator. And he's going to come on the scene with answers to the world's problems. And, and I think the world right now is being primed to embrace such a leader. We've talked about this in some of our prophecy updates that there is a leadership void right now in the world. There's chaos in Europe. And so many of the the, the leaders in Europe who have banded together are calling. I mean, it's been documented over and over again. We're saying, we need a world leader. Here in the U.S., I mean, we're seeing like, is Biden our leader? No, I mean, I think even his own people are not liking him anymore. I mean, it's, it's crazy, right? And even over in Russia, people in Russia are, and really all over the world, are questioning Putin, you know, his leadership as well. Like, what in the world is going on? There's a vacuum. And for the first time, I think, it is, as far as I can remember in my entire life, I am seeing what I've never, ever seen before in Israel. Have you been paying attention to Israel lately? There have been uprisings, upheaval, thousands upon thousands of people in the streets protesting because they're angry at their government. I've never seen that before. And Netanyahu, he's the man right there, and like no one likes him. We love him over here, at least Christians do, but, but you know, people in Israel right now, I mean, have you been paying attention? I mean, they're like just flocking the streets. I've never, ever seen that before. But the Bible says that in the last days, after the rapture of the church, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, that he's going to make a treaty with Israel. They're going to embrace him. I think they're being set up for that right now in the time in which we are living. So the Antichrist comes on the scene when there is this leadership void and vacuum in the world and the world's being primed for that right now. But notice the phrase in verse 10. He says, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. That tells us that right now, there's still an opportunity. There's still an opportunity right now for people to be saved. And that's God's heart. That's why Jesus is delaying his coming. Peter tells that in his epistle. But Paul says they did not receive the love of the truth. The idea is that they gave no welcome to the truth. They rejected the truth. And so God says he's going to give them over to a strong delusion. So that he's basically what he's saying. He's going to meet them in their rebellion. So people read that and say that just doesn't seem fair. But it's very much like what what God did with Pharaoh. You read in the book of Exodus that Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, you know, God says, let my people go. And at first, Pharaoh's like, no. And the Bible says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And it's interesting, if you read the the language, if you get a, a good, you know, study help that lets you see the language, each time where it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, it starts with a lighter word for hardened. 
like he made his heart firm. And it progresses each time to a stronger word to the point where it gets to the point where he made his heart like a rock against God. And so then it says, and so God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And basically what it's telling us there in Exodus is God gave Pharaoh chance after chance after chance to turn, but he didn't. He kept resisting and his resistance against God got harder and harder and harder to the point where God finally said, okay, I'm just going to meet you. Let's just speed up the process. I'm going to meet you in this and so I'm going to harden your heart and we're going to be done with this. This is the idea when it says that God gave them over to a strong delusion. But the Bible says, as I mentioned, that the Antichrist is even going to deceive Israel. And right now in Israel, if you were to ask an Orthodox Jew, they're still waiting, you know, if you realize this. We all believe Jesus is the Messiah. They don't believe that. They don't believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're still looking for the Messiah. We had a wonderful uh, guide with us the last couple times that we were in Israel. Love this guy, Ronnie Singer. So much fun. Hopefully he'll be our guide if we go again. We're thinking about it in 2024. But it's interesting that they don't believe that they're still looking for the Messiah, that he, that, for the Messiah to come. And if you ask an Orthodox Jew, who's gonna, how will you know? How will you recognize the Messiah? And this is what they say. He'll be the one that helps us build our temple. Well, that's exactly what the Bible says the Antichrist is going to do. That he's going to make a treaty. Daniel chapter 9, you can read about this. He's going to make a seven-year treaty with Israel. And we read here in our text here, we read in Matthew 24, we read in Daniel chapter 9, that the temple, which doesn't exist right now in Israel, is going to be built during this time. Because what, G, what Paul, what Jesus all say, if you look back at verse 4, this is what he's going to do. He makes this treaty with Israel for seven years. And for three and a half years, this is why, you ever wonder why the, the tribulation is divided in three and a half years? year periods, two, three and a half year periods. This is why. First three and a half years, the Antichrist is at peace with Israel. He's making friends with Israel. Second three and a half years, he turns on Israel. The tribulation time is God's wrath being poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world, but the Bible also calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Who's Jacob? Anybody? Israel. So it's time of Israel's trouble. It's the time where God is trying to get the attention once and for all of the people of Israel. And so the first three and a half years, he's at peace with them. He helps them build the temple. But right in the middle of that time, he does this. Look at verse four. Who's a, who opposes himself and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple, showing himself to be God. Jesus put it this way. He goes into the temple and declares himself to be worshiped as God. And both Daniel and Jesus refer to this as the abomination of desolation. He's desecrating the temple of God. So Paul says, here's how you can know that you're not in the tribulation yet. There's going to be a great falling away, a great apostasy. Number two, the man of sin, the lawless one, is going to come into power. But then he says this in verse three, but the one who restrains will have to be removed first. That's what he, in, in verses six and seven, he says that. That's number three. So before the Antichrist can come into power, there is a restraining influence that has to be removed first. What is that restraining influence? Well, well, notice verse six again. It's really not a what, it's a who. 
And now you know what is restraining. Isn't that interesting? Now you know. You guys know this. Who's restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now some have thought that what Paul is referencing here is the Holy Spirit being removed from planet earth. But we know that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune Godhead, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And God is omnipresent. So he's everywhere at once, in other words. So his presence can never be departed, removed, all right? Also, we know that during the tribulation time, there's a lot of people coming to faith in Christ. And the Bible says that no one can come to Christ unless the Holy Spirit draws him. So the Holy Spirit is gonna be at work during the time of tribulation. So if it's not the Holy Spirit, who is he talking about? Well, I think that it's very obvious that what he's talking about, the one who restrains, it's the Holy Spirit living in the life of the church. It's the believers. It's us. That we have to, before the Antichrist, Paul's saying, can come on the scene, we have to be taken out of the way because we are the restraining influence. That's what Paul, Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, he says that we're the salt of the earth. What is salt? Salt was that preserving influence on the earth. Jesus is saying that's what you guys are to be, a preserving influence on planet earth. You're to be that voice for morality, that voice that stands up and says, hey, we know what morality is. We know what right and wrong is. We know because the Bible tells us so. We're not gonna let culture dictate our morals, amen? Because we know what the Bible says. We know, we have, we're not confused at all about, about marriage because the Bible says no, it's between a man and a woman. We're, we're not confused at all about gender because the Bible says no, he made them male and female. And so we stand for that. But I want you to imagine a culture where you could believe anything you want and there would be no restraint. No restraining influence. I mean, we're, we're, there's a lot of people trying to push us in that direction right now, right? And it's the church that's standing up at a school board meeting and saying, this is not right. We, you can't teach this to our kids. It's the church, it's Christians that are standing up to be that restraining force. And they're pushing against us with all of their might. And, and what he's saying, there's gonna be a day when the restraining voice is removed, it's taken out of the way, and then all hell's gonna break loose. Because the Antichrist and his agenda is going to have full reign. So when are we taken out of the way? When the rapture happens. When Jesus calls us home. So Paul gives these three signposts to assure the believers in Thessalonica that they're not in the tribulation. He tells them that there would be a falling away first, that the man of sin, the Antichrist, would would be revealed, but he's not going to be revealed until the church is taken out of the way. And then he ends this whole book, this whole chapter, I mean, by saying this. I don't want you to be shaken, but I want you to stand fast. And very quickly, I want us to see that, that there's three important things that Paul mentions here about how we are to stand fast. Look at verse 13. He says, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for 
for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the first way that Paul wants us to stand fast is by being assured of our salvation. And so Paul begins by affirming them of their conversion. And verses 13 and 14 have been described as a miniature picture of Christian theology. Check this out. We're we're chosen by God in verse 13. We're drawn or set apart, sanctified is what it means, by the Holy Spirit. We're called according to the gospel, verse 14, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came to save sinners. We're required to believe, verse 13, For this purpose, in verse 14, that we would be destined for glory. That's a beautiful picture of the gospel in miniature. That's the the, the Christian faith in a nutshell. Chosen by God, drawn by the Holy Spirit, presented with the gospel, required to respond, and the result is we're destined for glory. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that glorious? It's a glorious truth in reality that we are destined for heaven. So Paul says, I want you to stand fast, not be shaken, knowing that you've been appointed unto salvation. You belong to God. That no matter how crazy this world gets, we know that Jesus is on the throne and his plan is going to be carried out. Number two, we are to stand fast by holding tightly to the word of God. Verse 15, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. So Paul's saying, I want you to stand fast. And the idea of standing fast is a military term. It's like soldiers that are digging in. They're not going to be moved. They're there on the front line. You know, it's the, it's the linemen in the football game. I'm going to stand fast. I'm going to hold my ground. I'm going to, you know, protect my quarterback. This is the idea. You hold your ground. How? By having your faith rooted deeply in the scriptures, the truth about who Jesus is, that he was God in human flesh, that he's our savior, that he's our redeemer, that he is our Lord. It's been said that your faith is only as strong as the object of your faith, and our faith is in the one and only Jesus who died on the cross and three days later rose again from the dead and has ascended into heaven and he lives and he's coming back, amen? So we're to stand fast, holding tightly to the word of God. And finally, number three, we stand fast knowing that Jesus is holding on to us. Look at verse 16 and 17. He says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace Comfort your hearts and, here's the key, establish you. So you're not shaken. You're standing. You're established. You in every good word and work. We stand fast, catch this, knowing that Jesus has a tighter grip on us than we have on him. Isn't that beautiful? We stand fast in knowing he has a tighter grip on you than you have on him. That's why we're told in Jude 24, 
and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Now unto him who is able. He's able to keep you from stumbling. And finally, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my brethren, be steadfast, immovable, stand fast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So we stand fast. Holding on to the truth, that's our responsibility. But knowing that Jesus is holding on to us and his grip on us is even greater than the grip that we have on him. That's the, the, the God side of that equation. We have a responsibility, but God's the one who has begun the, good, the work in us and he'll be faithful to complete it. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope, the assurance, the peace that we have in your word in the work of your son, the hope that we have in the the promise that you have given to us, that we don't have to despair, that we don't have to be confused about end time things, but Lord, we can know that you have laid this out pretty clearly for us. And so Lord, we wanna stand fast. We wanna hold tightly to the word. We wanna be the salt and light in the midst of this corrupt world that we're living in. We don't wanna be a a part of that group that is turning away from you. Lord, we wanna cling to the truth, but do so knowing that as we cling to the truth that you have an even tighter grip on us. We love you, we praise you, God. I pray that you would bless our time of discussion now this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.